Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read this section. We're going we're gonna to read 10 through 20 again, picking it up today in verse 16 as our starting place where we left off from last week. But for context, we want to read it again. Paul says, here at the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The strategies and tactics of him, you you need to be able to bear up under him, stand up under those things. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole arm of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all, you should underline the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You remember, um, now this is week 29, by the way. Week 29. So it took 29 weeks. Y'all remember that. I have critics um, who didn't think that we could do it. So remind them when they tell you how long I take. But uh, when we um, started this section of what we call spiritual warfare, typically, uh, verses 10 down through verse 20, I gave you two major headings. The first was stand steadfast in God's power, and that was verses 10 through 12. And then the second part was stand steadfast in God's provision in verse 13 down through 20, because what we find in this section of scripture is that we are utilizing equipment, if you will, and, 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 and armor and weaponry that God has already provided. We don't earn it. We don't qualify for it. It's made available to us. It's standard issue for the disciple in, in, in a way. And so that is what we need to know and understand. But as we even approach this, there's several things that we've been talking about, and I want to review just a few little things as we dive into this because I think it's extremely important as this is our last time, at least for this season of life, together in this setting going through these particular verses in this way. And so it's very important that we understand and remind ourselves that the battle that we're discussing here seems to be of an heavenly origin according to the scripture that we just read. And you remember uh, when we read verse 12, I'll read it for you again. We do, not, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. In other words, the, it's so much, I don't have time. The rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Just listen to the wording of that as Paul discusses the, 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 the organization of the powers, the rankings, the orders of these rulers of the darkness that we see in the world during this age that we live in. And the good news is it's not going to be present in the age to come. Amen. So when this age is over, we can, we can, we can just shake loose and praise God. We don't deal with this anymore. Amen. Amen. So we know that. We took a glimpse of this. If you remember, I kind of quoted some things or mentioned some things to you out of the book of Daniel. But um, I think I want to apologize that I might have mentioned Daniel chapter 9, so I wanted to get it straight. So today I brought the verses with me, and we're going to look at Daniel on the screen, chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. As Daniel, there's this scene that unfolds that gives us even a glimpse behind the curtain of what's going on in the heavenly. As, as the angel spoke to Daniel on the screen, it says, Then he said to me, Daniel writing of what the angel said, Do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. Now, first of all, what we got to catch there is 
that he says, from the first day that you begin to set your heart to understand, Daniel began to seek the Lord and to humble yourself from an Old Testament perspective. When it says to humble yourself, is, is, it is to humble yourself before God. But often in the Old Testament, humbling included fasting. And you can take note and go read in your own time, Ezra chapter 8, I think right around verse 21, Ezra proclaimed a fast out by the river so that the people could humble themselves. Some version says afflict themselves that they may seek God. In other words, David, uh, Daniel, excuse me, is both seeking God in prayer with fasting, we know. And the interesting thing about the scripture is that the angel is saying, Daniel, from the first day you began, you were heard. And I've come because of your words. In other words, Daniel began to pray and fast, seeking the Lord, and the Lord dispatched the angel to come to Daniel with the answers to what Daniel was seeking. Y'all remember that, right? Notice it says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Daniel was praying, we know, for 21 days and fasting. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, as I mentioned to you, and Paul just gave us a glimpse that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In other words, this prince of Persia is the demonic entity, the fallen angel who has been assigned by Satan to the geographic region or the kingdom of Persia. And he withstood the angel who we believe is Gabriel, who's coming to talk with Daniel for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the righteous angels that follow God, came to help me, is what the scripture is telling us. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. It's very interesting. Now he mentions the kings, plural, of Persia. And at the end of this dialogue, verse 20 and 21, the angel says, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, notice the prince of Greece will come. But on earth, there's, there's many years, almost a couple of hundred years between the two kingdoms. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me except Michael, your prince. Why is he called your prince? Because Michael is the archangel which is assigned to the nation of Israel. And so behind the scenes, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. And it seems to me, listen, the, the, the war, the things that are going on, the warfare seems to be fought in the heavenly realm. In fact, we're going to learn a lot about that heavenly realm. In fact, it is very interesting to me that Paul, throughout this book of Ephesians, mentions several things concerning the heavenly realm of which I want you to take note because he gives us the vision of victory from there. If you remember, it's in chapter 1, verse 20 that Paul told us, Ephesians 1, 20, you, can, you don't have to turn there, but he says that Christ has been raised up and God has seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That Christ has been seated in the right hand in the heavenly places we find in chapter 1, verse 20, which is beautiful. And it's beautiful because when you think about the throne room, John gives us a glimpse of the throne room in Revelation chapter uh, 4, where John is caught up in heaven. And he says there was one throne and one who sat on the throne. That's one good news, isn't it? In heaven, there is one throne where God the Father, the God of all the universe, sits with all of his authority and he rules from there. And he maintains rule and authority. But God the Son has been raised up to sit at the right hand of God the Father at his throne. In fact, at the end of the book of Revelation, the throne is the throne of, of, the, of, the, of God and of the Lamb. And Jesus is there seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heavenly places, which is good news for us because the Bible tells us that it's from there where Jesus intercedes for you and I every day. So he didn't leave us in the battle alone. He's praying for us in the battle that we have. And then Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 2, verse 6 of the book of Ephesians that we have been raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ. I'm just reading verses that's in the book that we're in. Y'all with me? The language is in chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, yes, chapter 2, verse 6. The language is this. That we have been raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Meaning that our, listen, the reality of our life is that our spiritual position in Christ is that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ now 
But you might say, but Pastor Kevin, but we're sitting in Clayton now dealing with the stuff that we have to deal with down here now. And that is true. But I want you to also understand that the Bible is very clear in heaven where there is the throne of God, where he sits and rules from, where Christ is seated at his right hand and where the very spirit of God, the seven spirits of God are there before the throne of God, which speaks of the complete and uh, power and presence of the Holy Spirit there in the heavenlies is that the spirit of God is also in us. The Bible says that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is also in us, bearing witness with our spirit that we are his. We know that, right? The Bible says, Ephesians 4, that there's one God who's above all, in all, and through all, by his spirit. Therefore, it's the very spirit of God that connects us all and connects us to Christ for all eternity. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, spiritually speaking, our spiritual position is seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And that's good news. Now, Paul goes on to tell us, that it's from that same place, the heavenly places in chapter 3, verse 10, where the angels are present and viewing this whole thing. It says in chapter 3, verse 10, to the intent now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, to principalities and powers in heavenly places. And so we understand that. And not only that, he goes on to tell us, Back in chapter three, verse, excuse me, chapter one, verse three, that every spiritual blessing that is possible and available has been made available to us in heavenly places. Amen. That was good news. We remember that. But then Paul then gives us this glimpse in chapter six, verse 12, where he says, now I need you to understand that you and I do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, host means many, of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he brings back to the attention that it's also in the heavenly places where the demonic kingdom that seeks to come against us is operating as well. So listen. So there seems to be a biblical truth here that many of the things that take place in our lives down here are the results of things that are taking place up there in the heavenlies. So then for us to battle through the things that we deal with down here, we need to stay in tune, in sync with the captain of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ, who is in the heavenly, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now. In other words, there is, listen, there is a root cause to the physical challenges that we face while following the Lord. See, if we only deal with the physical, many, as I've told you, many in Christendom, many Christians, especially on the conservative side of the church, don't even want to admit that there is a real spiritual battle that's going on, nor that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. It's a sad place to exist. Well, many Christians on the uh, charismatic Pentecostal side want to only deal with things in the spiritual Everything is, 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 is a spirit, and it's not a balance of truth. And we need to be balanced completely. So, see, if we only deal with the physical and not the spiritual, if we only deal with the earthly and not the heavenly, it would be like trying to stop a tree from growing by cutting off the fruit and never digging up the root. Where I'm from, on, on the, my dad, my dad, Lord knows, it took him... Many years to come to this conclusion. I told him when I was 16, I said, Dad, you're planting too many trees and stuff. It takes me three hours to cut the grass because I'm constantly going in circles around stuff. And he didn't want to listen. Then when he got old, he wants to cut stuff down because it's in his way now. <laughs> you see, when you got a 16-year-old cutting the grass, it don't matter. But when you're a 70-year-old cutting the grass, now it's an issue. And one of the trees he planted was a silver maple tree. And a silver maple tree is an interesting tree because it, it, the roots spread and the shoots go everywhere. And if you're not on top of it, you're going to have a forest instead of a lawn of silver maple trees. It's kind of like bamboo. You got to dig out the root in order to kill the tree because otherwise it just, it just keeps producing. If you cut the tree off and never dig the roots, the shoots will come up other places and just reestablish themselves. And so I do believe that Scripture is showing us that there's more behind the, behind the scenes going on. And that's where our real battle is always. You see, many Christians are, are not victorious in earthly places 
because they fail to take advantage of the resources from heavenly places, which Paul has given us in chapter 6. You see, we have the whole armor of God, but God is not forcing us to use any of it. Remember, I told you weeks ago that we have the responsibility of taking advantage of what God has provided in order to live a victorious Christian life. Not that we're going to be ultimately defeated. No, the book is finished. We win. But we're not going to be victorious and fully glorify him unless we understand these things. He does remind us. He does urge us as he's doing this morning in this chapter. Now, this is the thing. Through the years, I have found that many Christians say that they want to live a victorious life, but never really want to do what it takes to live one. I've been invited over to pray, asked to pray, anoint the, the house, uh, asked, uh, scheduled for counseling sessions and all that kind of stuff. And uh, where they want to talk about it forever. Then uh, many Christians have spent years in Christian counseling, sp- spending money to talk about it forever. Then they go, many go to therapists and they have pills and, 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 and they're dealing with all of the surface level fruit issues. And there's a root issue that they never really want to deal with. Never really want to deal with. Many times, many times, and, and I'll get, get into this if I have time, but many times I've offered up a, a different approach. Why don't we establish a regimen of prayer and fasting? And, 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 let's, and let's target this thing and let's battle through. And most of the time the response to that is, Pastor, we'll pray about it. We'll get back to you. We'll let you know. All right, well, you got to pray about praying and fasting, so okay. Um, and I think that um, we're missing it quite a bit. In preparing for this as I was reviewing, and I went back and, and I was looking at chapter 3, verse 10, I got stuck there because I think that when I was teaching through chapter 3, I left something on the table because I didn't quite know how to deal with it, but it says in chapter 3, verse 10, to the intent... Let me back up to verse 9. It says, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. Then he says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. The interesting thing about the verse is he's not saying that in ages to come, we'll all look back and see what happened through the church. He's literally saying, look at the verse again. He says, to the intent that now in this current age, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, notice by us, the church, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. In other words, it's almost as if he's saying now in this current age, God is going to display his wisdom to the whole angelic host by the church and how he works in us by his spirit to cause us to be victorious and to bring him glory if we would only grab up what we're supposed to and, and stand, you know? That's what he's kind of getting at now. Now, here's the thing, and, and then I'll, I'll move on into to the text. Y'all have to bear with me. But I was looking at um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, um, you know, he wrote the little book that I gave to y'all years ago about the power of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the church and in the believer's life. Um, awesome preacher, and he believed um, that Christians wasted their strength many times. He said it was as if they received some of the available strength and might of God, but it simply leaked away like water in a bucket that is full of holes. And then he gave a list of the things that he believed distracted and sapped the strength right out of Christians. Let me read to you really quick, uh, just a short list, and then we'll move on. Number one was committing to too many spiritual works or things. Just being, you know, spread too thin, constantly busy, 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 but not making any major impact because we only have so much capacity on this side. Next, uh, too much conversation. We're doing too much talking about it. We ain't doing nothing about it. It's very interesting. We can talk. We can't talk forever. I mean, how long will we be in counseling? counseling doesn't accomplish anything unless the word of God accomplishes nothing unless you're going to apply it. So we chit chattering too much and ain't doing anything. Arguments, debates, and wranglings. How many ever meet Christians that just want to debate everything? They just always just, Oh Lord. Laziness is the next one on the list. Just lazy. 
Then he says, too much time in the wrong company. Spending time around the wrong people. Too much foolish talking and joking. Um, Love of money and career. Distraction, love of the world, the things of the world. A desire for respectability and image. And and it's more prevalent in our time than when he wrote it because now we all take selfies and have social media. So we we really love the image even when we do ministry. Um, uh, So an unequal yoking with an unbeliever is one. And then the last two are really convicting for all of us. All of these are convicting. But the next one is ungodly entertainment. Ungodly entertainment, how much time we can spend with that. And then the final one, which we got to check ourselves on, is a wrong attitude towards or doubting the word of God. A wrong attitude towards the word of God and doubting the word of God. And, and that's prevalent in this time because nowadays the word of God is becoming so cliche-ish, but we're not taking it seriously. And so now as we dive in and we've been looking at these six pieces of equipment. We've looked at three of them, and we're going to finalize today with the final three. And as preparing for today, you remember I've been telling you the verbs I think are important in here, so stay with me. Listen, don't, don't check out. The verbs are important because as we glance at this, we notice picking it up in verse 13, reading the first three pieces of our equipment. Notice he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Notice he says, stand this way. Having girded your waist, notice the verbs, have, to have, or to be. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. But then he uses a different series of verbs when he begins to talk about the next section or the next three pieces of equipment. Notice verse 16, above all, he says, taking the shield of faith. And then he goes on in verse 17, taking the helmet of salvation. And as in taking the sword of the spirit. And that's a different verb. And the wording is interesting. It it, it seems to imply that there is a difference, something distinctly different between the first three pieces of our armor or the first three pieces of equipment and the next three. In fact, I want you to notice how it reads in the NIV on your screen. The NIV says, therefore, put on the whole arm of God so that when the day of evil comes. And, and, you know, the NIV is a paraphrase. It's not a literal translation. I love the way it's worded here. It says, so when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Then it says, in addition to all this, now take up the shield of faith with which you will extinguish all the fiery, uh, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And it seems implied this, there's a distinction. The verbs he uses for the first three pieces of equipment. It seems to me, in other words, it is as if the first three are a constant state of readiness that you must live in, whether there is a current spiritual battle or not. Now, my wife is from Fayetteville. It's a military town. How many of you ever lived in a military town? A few of you, not many. Okay. The interesting thing about a military town that I found is that you often see soldiers just going through their everyday life, but because they're active duty, they're in uniform. You'll see them at the gas station, in their fatigues, pumping gas, in the grocery store, you know, looking at the lettuce, fully, fully in uniform, uh, in the bank teller line, in uniform. And then on Wednesday night at church, they roll into church in uniform on active duty always having a uniform on. And I I think that's a very interesting picture because I I think it speaks of what the first three pieces of armor represent. They represent, listen, a way that we must live at all times. You see, when the battle heats up, you pick up the other three weapons, which we're going to talk about today. But in other words, the first three represent a standard uniform that you wear while the nakes are what you pick up when the battle heats up and you grab as you need to defend. In other words, listen, I believe that there's a standard issue uniform that every Christian must have on. And you see, as we review the equipment from last week, you must have the standard issue of truth around your waist that binds all things together. 
there must be that standard of truth because once you have that standard of truth, then you have a basis for the righteousness that you live by, which is your breastplate, and it makes you right with God. You're living according to the righteousness that's found in the truth of God that binds all things together in your life. And from there, you can experience a consistency of peace that comes from the good news that Jesus is Lord and I belong to him for all eternity. So therefore, my waist must be girded with truth. My, my, I must have a breastplate of righteousness on and I must be wearing my gospel shoes. You follow me? Because it's with these three in place, listen, that we've secured. Listen carefully. With these three in place, we have secured a state of spiritual victory of which we can enjoy every day without fear of defeat from the enemy. In fact, he cannot defeat us when we are in this state unless God himself allows testing for our growth. In other words, I believe that the believer operates always, as I've told you, from a place of victory, not defeat. We're not going to, we're not really fighting the battle so much Jesus has fought it and won it. And we're equipping ourselves to stand strong and not stray away. You follow me? Because then if you live that way every day, you're ready when the battle heats up and the attack actually comes in the middle of the week and you got to grab the next three pieces of of equipment, which we're going to go into now. Because look, in the middle of the week, when it heats up, you need to be ready. You can't necessarily call for Pastor Kevin or or whoever you might be trying to get, you know, and, and, and everybody's out doing their thing. You need to be ready. So let's begin now as we go back to verse 16. The next three pieces of equipment. Notice it says, above all, taking notice the shield of faith. We're going to go through these at a good pace today. The shield of faith. And notice what he says about it. With which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So much contained within that verse. Let's pick it apart. First, taking the shield of faith. It's called the shield of faith, which implies that we do something which demonstrates that we actually have faith. You see, the Bible tells us that faith without works is dead. That's right. So it's only, look, the only thing that seems to move the emotions of God, in my opinion, as I read through scripture. Or should I say gets him really excited? invites him to move on our behalf based upon the promises that he's already made is faith. I read through the gospels and Jesus is moved when people exercise faith about who he really is. When the centurion said, I don't need you to come all the way to my house. I've watched, I've listened, I've heard. If you just speak the word, you are in control, Jesus. And I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus was like, he took a moment. He said, man, I ain't seen this much faith in all of Israel. And, of course, he healed the centurion's uh, ser- uh, servant just by speaking. In the Hall of Fame in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the people of faith, it says that by faith, and it lists all of the things that they accomplished, by faith, walls of cities came falling down to the ground. By faith, whole nations of the enemy were literally destroyed as God rehearsed their faith because he, he's moved by that. In fact, so much so that the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that the just over and over and over, Old Testament and New Testament, must live not by sight, not by what you heard, not by anything that's literally going on in our midst, but by faith. It's how we've been called to live our Christian lives. More and more today, we need to understand and learn to live by faith, not by sight. You know, faith is exciting because it sends me on an adventure where I really don't have to rely on what I see physically around me every day. Because that's boring anyway. And it's, you know, it just is. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, I don't, I don't, what I see, I don't like. I rather, I rather just believe what he says, even if I got to wait on what he says. So he says then that we should take the shield of faith. In other words, he's not talking about saving faith. He's talking about the faith that we live by. So in other words, the very faith that we have becomes a part of the equipment itself. And notice what he says about it. He says in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I like that. Now, in times when, uh, when Paul was writing this, the Roman soldiers used their shields in battle. But what their enemies would often do is the enemies would dip their arrows in a, uh, a inflammatory substance like pitch or something. And they would light them on fire and they would fire them at the, at the, at the soldiers. 
Now, what they were intending to do, it was great if you killed one, but, you know, you didn't kill many Roman soldiers by firing an arrow because of the shield. So, but what they wanted to do then, well, let's set the shield on fire because if we can do that, number one, we're going to distract him because he's going to stop and try to put the fire out or the fire is going to burn and cause smoke. And what it's going to do is cause confusion, which is never of God, confusion is uh, God is not the author of confusion. It's going to cause confusion, and it's going to disorient them and cause confusion and delay. Now, when I was thinking about that, because of my son, I was thinking about Thomas the Train. Because often, you know, they would cause confusion and delay, and that was a problem. Anybody, nobody here, kids watch Thomas? Okay, good, good. Confusion and delay, that was a bad thing. And, uh, and then they had the troublesome trucks, and that, that's what they were known for, you know. Y'all didn't? Some of y'all did. Oh, all right, well, I thought it was cool when it popped in my head. Um, so that's what they were trying to do, cause confusion and delay, which the enemy loves to do. He's the author of it. He's the father of lies. And so they had this shield of faith. So what the soldiers, the Roman soldiers would do often, they had this shield, two-by-four shield made out of wood, overlaid with leather and hide, basically. And then they would, before the battle, they would soak their shields in water. And they would go into battle with those, those soaked shields that were now even heavier. And so when the arrows would hit the Roman soldier's shield, the, the water would, it would just dissipate and, and it would quench it. And the soldier would continue to advance in his battle. And so this is the thing. He says, the, look, notice what he says. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench. Notice all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I love that. In other words, Paul calls the shield uh, calls this a shield of faith, implying that our faith forms a shield which protects us. It's, again, not saving faith, but it's, it's, it's living faith. And our faith, which is an unwavering belief in God's protection, provision, his love, is a defensive weapon that protects us from Satan's fiery darts. Because he's constantly shooting fiery darts towards us into our hearts, and into our minds, which are lies, as I said, he's the father of them, which are blasphemous thoughts. Anybody ever just have thoughts that are just demonic and you, and you know in yourself, where did that come from? You weren't prior to that moment entertaining it and it just pops and it just grieves you in your spirit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, be real. I mean, you know, it just can come. And sometimes at the wrong time, hateful thoughts about others. Doubts about God and, and, and who you are in God and are you really, the first dart that comes at the believer is you ain't get saved. The brand new believer takes an arrow head on. Burning desires and lust for sin, they come at you constantly. They're coming over your wall trying to pierce you. And if they can't pierce you because you got enough faith to, 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 to take them off and to quench them, they're trying to cause confusion and delay. Now, one of the, listen, fellowship is also one of the forms of using your shield. What do I mean? Well, the Roman shield was designed in such a way to where they could in, uh, in lock with one another. And so often what the Roman soldiers would do when they were a unit going into battle and the enemy would pop up over the hill and fire darts at them. And often they would fire thousands of them at one time. And so any good unit, the commander of that unit could give a command and those soldiers could instantly in the front flip those shields together and boom, they have a wall. The soldiers on the side would do the same thing and create side walls. The soldiers in the middle would flip theirs up and create a ceiling. And literally, you've got an impenetrable, walled-off section that this unit would be under duck until all the, fire, the arrows ended and then the command would be given to advance even further. And they would constantly be able to move forward because when they would take that shield and flip it, they could duck behind and tuck in and hide their whole body. And that's what he says here. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith, which would be able to quench, notice all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This is interesting. In other words, he didn't say that, well, you can quench a whole lot of them. You know, some of them are going to get through and, and, and destroy you and, and whatnot. And, you know, you, you might not make it today, but it's kind of like a video game. You'll get a new life tomorrow. And he didn't say any of that. He said literally that you can quench all 
the fiery dots or the wicked one. I love the word all in scripture because often all is encouraging us that God has taken care of everything. And just the faith alone that God has given us, the unwavering belief in who he is and what he says is enough to cause you to get up and, and advance and not be destroyed. And this is what the scriptures are telling us. We got to move forward. Notice the next one. He says, and take the helmet of salvation. I love the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is important for many reasons. Those fiery darts that come, often the battle is for the mind. The helmet protects the head. It protects the mind, which is important because that's where a lot of the battles are taking place. And there's this, this, this covering of salvation that we have to understand is very, very, very uh, complex because there, as I've told you in the past, tenses of our salvation. There's a past, present, and future tense of the salvation that we receive. The past is called justification. The present is called sanctification. The future is called glorification. Now listen, the past tense of salvation, which is justification, is salvation through separation from the penalty of sin. In other words, because we have been saved, we're now separated from the penalty of sin because Christ took it, which gives us the assurance and the confidence that we are truly saved. Do you think that Christ is going to die on the cross that you can be half saved or unsaved? Absolutely not. And it's that assurance that tells me that no matter what happens, God ain't done with me. Satan, you're lying. He does love me. I am his. And ain't nothing you can do about it. That's one. Then it doesn't stop there. The, tense, the, the present tense of salvation, which is sanctification, it means to be saved through the separation from the power of of sin. This is our present experience. The power of sin can't have a hold over me because of the present tense of salvation. This gives us the current power of salvation that Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 that you will be, that once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. When he comes upon you from Ohio, you will have power to be witnesses to me and, and to really live for me. And Paul talks about it in First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 when he said to the Thessalonians, we didn't come in word only but in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we showed up. This is how your life was changed. This is why you laid down all your um, idols and burned them in the streets and became completely transformed and continued to grow. And you're held now and you're not being lost today because God is still working. His spirit is still in you. And there's a future tense of salvation, which is glorification which is salvation through the separation from the presence of sin. In other words, one day we'll be removed from even the presence of sin and the trials that we go, in, uh, go through down here. And this gives us the hope of our final salvation. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 on the screen. Paul says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And notice as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why is the hope of salvation and glorification in the future a helmet? Because it tells me that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. My eternity is secure. And no matter how bad it gets down here, all of this is temporary. And see, that helmet keeps your mind guarded. And it keeps you going. And you have to have that. And, and see, if you have your waist girded with truth, then these truths are in you and you can, you can hold to it. Let's continue. Notice the next one as we go into verse 17 and take the helmet of salvation. Notice he says, and the sword of the spirit. Notice he says, which is the word of God. We're making better time this service. This is good. Sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I love this. Let me, let me, let me give, it, give it to you in two ways. So first, when we think about the word of God, he calls it the sword of the spirit. What that means is that the spirit himself uses one thing to wage war on our behalf. And it is the very word of God, which he's the author of, because we only get the word as the spirit of God moves upon holy men of past who wrote 40 of them from three different continents and over you know, two, 3,000 years with three different languages and all that kind of stuff, and it's perfect, okay? Because it came from one Holy Spirit. So his weapon 
is the word of God. That is the sword of the spirit. We're thankful for that. The interesting thing, though, is when you look at the word of God in the New Testament, there's a couple different words. There are two that we spend most time seeing. There's the logos, which is the very word of God itself written in, in written form. We see that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. That is the logos, John chapter 1, verse 1. However, the word here being used is the other one, which is rhema. And rhema is the word which is uttered. That's what it means, meaning that the Logos must become the rhema if we're going to do battle. Now, here's the thing. I believe that when the battle heats up and you go to grab your, 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 your last three pieces of armor, it, what you have there is dependent upon the preparation that you put in ahead of time. If the first three are your daily lifestyle, if daily you have the belt of truth always with you, because you, you don't need to swing a sword when you're in fellowship. We all believe the same thing, right? We're not swinging the sword so much, right? So we're fellowshipping with the word of God and we're encouraging one another. It must be a constant part of your life every day. Listen, there's a guy I was talking to yesterday from the church and he struggles really bad with some type of anxiety attack, and it's really weird how it affects him. When he first told me about it, I didn't understand it, but he, he reminded me that I had given him these scriptures, and I printed them off, and, and whenever it attacks him, he, he ends up, he, he's memorized them, and he's quoting these scriptures, you know, and they encourage him and get him through. Well, years after that conversation, Weirdly enough, and I don't know if it's a midlife thing, I, honestly, my wife just humbled me and told me as I described it to her, no, that's, a, that's, that's the enemy. I suffer with it as well. There are times when it can come and it's like, it's just, it hits you and you, you're trying to figure out how to handle it and what to do. And um, I remember one time uh, I, I could feel it coming on. I was on a plane on my way to um, Columbia and um, I do the same thing he did and I forgot that I told him to do it. <laughs> I just began to pray and, and, uh, and quote scripture at that very moment, and God settles my heart and my mind, and I battle through it with that. With that, that's all I have at that moment. It's nothing else that's going to do it. It's, it's the truth of God. I remember one time it hit me so hard, I put my headphones on, and I played Pastor Chuck. So I had Pastor Chuck in the ear, and I was praying, and I was battling through what I was dealing with. And, and it really brought me through it because it's one of those things that when it hits, you need to be ready at that moment to do battle. And you don't often don't have time to run and get your word. Now, here's the thing about this. Stay with me. Jesus wants us to understand this because he modeled it for us. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Stay with me. Don't be asleep. Don't be lazy. Take notes. Disciples, disciples have a pen, a pad, and a Bible at all times. Because you don't ever know when God's going to speak to you. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But one of the things that we have to understand about this chapter is Jesus, um, he comes under intense spiritual warfare here. Different from us is Satan himself that opposes Jesus. Now, the, the beauty about this is that Jesus is God. He's God incarnate. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, okay? Being God, he's a, he does not use his Godship, his divinity, in this battle. He does battle in his humanity so that he could fully help us understand how to do battle. I think he did it for that very purpose. Now, previous chapter... Jesus is baptized. Holy Spirit comes upon him. No different than us. Holy Spirit has come upon us. Now, let's read. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit, excuse me, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. And when he had fasted, notice, 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. That makes sense, right? Now, the interesting thing I need you to understand about Jesus' 40-day fast is Jesus wasn't fasting from, like, TV for 40 days. <laughs> Jesus wasn't saying, you know, I'm going to fast from video games or using my smartphone for 40 days. He, he fasted from food, and he was hungry, okay? 
Okay, you with me? Because that's really what fasting is. That's one area of our body. That's one thing that really shuts down the noise of our flesh wanting its way all the time. You want, you want to buffer, you want to beat the flesh up and shut it up and sit it in the corner? Fast. So anyway, so Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. That means he didn't eat any food for 40 days. Now, scientifically or medically, I should say, he's at a place now where his body is beginning or has gone into survival mode and is beginning to do what it can to prolong as many days possible, meaning that the body is about beginning to devour itself. Okay, so death has basically begun to some degree. I've never fasted this long, actually. So it's at this time that Satan comes, the tempter, that's one of his names. It's when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, Satan knows that he actually is the son of God or he wouldn't have tempted him in this way. Because if Jesus wasn't God and able to turn stones into bread, then it wouldn't actually be a temptation. It makes sense. So Jesus is God with the power to turn the stones into bread. So notice what Jesus does. Jesus, he if you will, disciplines himself, puts aside his own ability to deal with this in a divine way. And Jesus simply does what we're being exhorted to do by Paul. He answered and said, it is written. Now, here's what Jesus did. Now, here's the one advantage Jesus has in this situation. He is the living word of God. So he knows it all from start to finish, right? But we haven't been I mean, he doesn't have an advantage over us technically because we've been called to do the same thing, to study the scriptures, to give attention to the scriptures, to meditate on the word day and night, to literally devour the word of God. We are to know the word of God. So we have no excuse then. So Jesus literally goes to Deuteronomy. Why he goes to Deuteronomy chapter eight? Because this is his weapon of choice. And he says, hey, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He shut Satan down with the word of God. The interesting thing is, and he could have used many scriptures. There's one where David says, your word is to me sweeter than honey. There's so many verses, but the verse that Jesus' heart and mind went to, he grabbed a hold of it and used it very precisely in this situation, which means that Jesus went for the right scripture to be fitted in the right place at the right time to deal with the situation that was going on in him. And Satan could do nothing. So then it says, then the devil took him up into, a, into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And he's quoting scripture again, not the best way and definitely out of context. And he often does that because Satan knows the word too. That's how he deceived Eve in the garden. But Jesus simply says again, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He shut Satan down by simply quoting scripture. This is very interesting. Now, let's finish up. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus doesn't argue with him because it's useless. At this point, Satan is right. Satan has the power and authority to actually give him the kingdoms of the earth because they belong to Adam who, because Adam had dominion over all, who lost them because of sin to Satan. So Satan being the little God of this world is actually speaking the truth here. Jesus responds though, away with you, Satan. He exercises authority. He says, go, go away for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Notice, then the devil left him. And then, behold, the angels came and they ministered to Jesus. Satan left him because the Bible says in the New Testament that if we resist the devil, he will flee. If we turn our hearts to the Lord, he will turn to us. That's what Scripture says. And see, we're not going to kill Satan. You're not going to bind him and, 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 and put him under your foot and all the, the stuff you learn down at the you know, Pentecostal church. It sounds good, though, when you're in, in the middle of a service, I guess. But no, that's not going to happen. We, we don't. But we do have the authority to dismiss him because, listen, if you have the belt of truth on, saturated in truth, living right before God, dwelling in the peace of God and the truth of his gospel, 
when you pick up your sword to swing it. You do in some ways, you have authority over him because the word of God is over and above and more powerful to Satan. And he is subject to it just like everything else. Jesus said, the Bible says that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle out of my word. The word of God used properly in context in the right way. Shut Satan down every time. Because see, his fiery darts are going to tell you many things that are lies. And you have to be ready to do combat. And there are times when the word of God is what you stand on, what you believe is how you press forward. Knowing the word of God the right way and being skilled at using it is important. I don't know if I said earlier, because listen, here's the thing. If you're not prepared, you don't know the word of God, then you have no sword. I've done two services. I don't know if I already said this or not, to be honest with you. But if you don't have the word of God, you, you're not in it as a lifestyle. You absolutely have no sword for, with the fight with. You have a butter knife, which is good for nothing but toast. <laughs> and if you're trying to make toast in the middle of a battle, and, and that's, I guess that can work. But disciples are called, we're called to be in the word of God. Now, you go to a church that's encouraging you to bring your Bible to church. You ever go to churches where they don't bring their Bibles in on the way in? Yeah, that's interesting. If you're a soldier during wartime, you can't go to the bathroom without your gun. You get court-martialed for getting caught without your gun. It's very interesting. We're not going to do that here. Because <laughs> y'all will be in trouble as many of y'all leave your Bibles here during the week. <laughs> but... If you don't have the Bible and you're not reading the word, if you're not spending time in it, if you're not going, look, if you don't go to women's ministry meetings or men's ministry studies and discipleship studies and home fellowships and young adults and youth discipleship and, and all of these things, I can't name them all, and marriage, home fellowship, and, and you know, where you're studying and praying about marriage and you're looking at scriptures that apply to marriage. If you're not doing these things, you ignore all of that stuff, but the first one to make a counseling session. You know, you're, you're, you're not equipping yourself then as a disciple to be ready in the evil day when you can't get a hold of nobody. You know? Jesus modeled what he wants us to do, and I love him. Every good leader is willing to do the same thing that they're asking those they lead to do. Every good leader is willing to do the same things. Well, Jesus is no different. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to set my divinity, my, I'm going to set my divine nature, my Godship, my power from, from that perspective because he was 100% God and 100% man. He says, I am going to set that aside. And as 100% man, I'm going to call on the various things that I'm making available to you and send Satan running because there's nothing he can do. And that is what he's called us to do too. And so then as we wrap this up, He says, finally, praying always here with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He says, after you've, you, you live a lifestyle being equipped with the first three pieces of equipment, having your belt of truth girded on, holding and binding everything together, your feet prepared with the gospel of peace, and having... Uh, your breastplate, of course, of righteousness on and all of that. And then having learned to lift up your shield of faith and put on your helmet of salvation and grab your sword in the spirit. And now that you're fully equipped and you're fully engaged, he says, make sure that you maintain good communication with home base. I love this. And that is what he's saying here. And he gives us this aspect of prayer, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And let's go through the various things that he gives us. Because I believe when I think about the first century warfare, I'm not really sure how they called for reinforcements, whether they used the trumpet or they had an arrow they used as a signal or, or what they did. But I know in modern warfare, if our soldiers are pent down on the battlefield, and they've done everything else. The last thing they can do, well, the thing they're doing constantly is maintaining good intelligence and communication so that when that happens, they can call for an airstrike. And from anywhere in the world, in a matter of minutes, our government can bomb the heck out of anything they want to. And then our soldiers are free from that situation. Well, you can do the same thing. Call an airstrike. Notice what he says first. Pray always. In verse 18, praying always is very simple. I didn't even make it difficult. In other words, keep lines of communication open. 
And it doesn't mean, praying always doesn't mean that we're constantly just running our mouth. Jesus says vain repetition and much speaking, that doesn't get it done. But we are to, without stopping, continue to communicate with God. It's an open line of communication. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, 16 and 17, it says, Rejoice always with all, without, and, and, and pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. I love that. That we are called to pray without ceasing. That seems difficult because we complicate it. It just means that we are to be constantly open to having communication with God. But notice this. Not just always praying, talking with him, listening to him, talking with him. How many of y'all talk in the car with the Lord? Yeah. Pray without ceasing. Sometimes my son is like, Dad, you all right? Because I'll just, something just come out. Lord, help me. Thank you, Jesus. Just in the middle of the day, just, everything was quiet, and I just outburst. Dad, you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm talking to the Lord. Like he's sitting right here. Let me, you know, stop interrupting me. You know? <laughs> the next part, he says, pray, pray with all prayer. Meaning, I believe here that, that there is a comprehensive uh, side to prayer that we need to understand. Prayer is not just one type of prayer, but there are many different types of prayer that we need to engage in in order to be well-rounded and fully effective. There needs to be the prayer of rejoicing. We, we saw that up in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. We are to always pray. We learned this back in Ephesians chapter um, 5. We're to be thankful in everything, and so we should have prayer of thanksgiving. I should be rejoicing in who he is and what he's done. I should be thankful of everything that he's done, and I should be communicating that to him. You know, one of the things as a husband I found is sometimes I don't communicate stuff that's in my head. And my wife reminds me, I'm not in your head. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, now, yeah, God knows what you're thinking, but in other words, communicate it with him. Rejoice and pray prayers of thanksgiving partitioning prayers, prayers where you say, Lord, this situation, this is what's going on specifically. I know you know, but I need to talk to you about it. I need you to hear me. Lord, can you help in this way? And prayers of interceding or intercessory prayer where you're praying for others. All of these are parts of the comprehensive uh, way that we should be praying. And so then he says, not only that, we are to pray in the spirit. Notice again, the verse praying always, not just always, but with all prayer and supplication, and then in the Spirit. Well, what does in the Spirit really mean? Pastor Kevin, help me out. Romans 8 says it this way. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. So there's a weakness that we have even when it pertains to prayer. He describes it, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. That's our weakness. In other words, when we go into prayer, oftentimes, many times, because our prayer life is kind of sparse, that we really don't even know what we should be praying about. We don't have a good view and understanding of what's going on. And so we're praying about or for something that's probably not even good for us anyway. And if God gave it for, to us, it'll mess us up. You understand? So since we don't, he says, but the Spirit himself, capital H, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead Trinity, makes intercession for us. In other words, he's interceding on our behalf to the Father because we don't know what we're doing when we're praying. So we can be praying, and the Holy Spirit is he's interceding at that very moment for us, and he's using things like here's described with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, how many of you have ever come to where you're praying so sincerely, and you run out of words, but there's, a, there's this a moan, a groan from within your soul? Anybody? Okay, that's a good many of you. Now, how many of you, when you pray, sometimes you pray with the heavenly language of tongues that God has given you? Raise your hand. Okay, that's many of you as well. Which one is praying in the spirit? Both. That's exactly right. You know, and, and even for those of you who pray in tongues, the, the groanings with, that can't be uttered goes even beyond sometimes. In other words, listen, there is a depthness to prayer that goes beyond the surface where I'm being so real with God that I can't even express any further what I, I need to say to him. Which is true because, you know, truly, he's beyond us. This is beyond us. And sometimes we can't contain it. And sometimes the prayer, and, and, and that's the moment where the prayer really gets real. And so it says, now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is. In other words, God knows because he makes intercessions 
for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, God didn't even leave us to pray for ourselves because he knew we messed that up too. We, we can't do it. You know, we're limited down here. But it's okay. He says, it's all right. You just begin. You just make a step towards me and I'll meet you right where you are. And I'll make the time and the, the moment we have together very impactful because I know what you truly need. I know what your soul longs for. I know what the spirit within you is, is trying to get done in you. And God knows and he understands. And so we are to pray in the spirit. That's what he says here. Praying always with all prayer and supplication, but in the spirit, beyond the surface level stuff. It means when you pray, get real with God and, and be sincere and stay there and spend time with him. You don't have to understand what's going on in that moment of prayer where you sense his presence and you don't really discern in the natural what's happening. It's okay. Let him have his way. You keep praying. You stay there in that moment. Don't hop up quick to be like, oh man, I felt the Lord. I'm gone. No, just be patient. And then he says, not only that, pray with your eyes open. Notice he says, being watchful, it means circumspect, attentive, ready. Uh, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers in 1 Peter chapter 4. And, and not only that, Nehemiah, when he had the people working on the, on the walls of the city, they were working with a tool in one hand, with, with, um, with a tool in one hand, with a weapon in the other hand, and praying at the same time. That's how they were living. And that's how we have to be sometimes. In other words, we have to be alert, paying attention to what's going on around us, being serious and watchful as we pray to God, understanding the times that we live in, taking prayer serious. We don't take prayer serious sometimes because we don't take serious that God not only is listening, but will move on our behalf. And so he's calling us into being serious. And notice he says, and don't stop. Notice he says uh, at the end of the verse, he says, with all perseverance and supplication. In other words, don't stop. Keep praying. Remember, what would have happened if Daniel had stopped praying on day 20 and the angels showed up on day 21? Keep praying. Finally, he says, for all the saints. In other words, lift up everybody. Constantly be praying. And you don't have to understand and know everything that's going on. Just, just pray. Lift the saints up. Lift the people that you see here on Sunday mornings up. Whenever somebody comes across your mind, honestly, then you can lift them up. There are people here that you see week in and week out, and sometimes they come across your mind, and you might not know their name or have their phone number. It doesn't even matter. When the spirit was still one, at that moment, that person could be in a crisis where when you then begin to lift them up in prayer, you just entered into warfare with them. So in other words, did I talk about the walls of the, the shields? I got too much. Yeah, fellowship. It, it's we're interlocking now. We're walking with each other through this thing as one unit Praying together. So then he finalizes this thing. Paul says, listen, while you're at it, Ephesians, and for me, he gets in on it. And I would say the same thing. Pray for Pastor Kevin. He says that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth with, and boldly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains because he's writing from prison that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The fact that he's in prison, his prayer is, hey, Pray for me that I can get out of jail. Actually, no. It's, I'm where God wants me to be. Pray that I be bold while I'm in jail preaching the gospel of Christ. Now, well, let's wrap up. One minute to go. Here we go. For that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister in the Lord will make all things known to you whom I have sent to you for this purpose that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. In other words, Tychicus is going to come and he's going to tell you how I'm doing. He's going to describe, man, Paul is doing well. I'm, I'm visiting him in prison. You know, he's eating, he's writing, he's reading, he's ministering to people and yada, yada. And now everybody's encouraged. They thought Paul was in the stocks in the bottom of the prison. They find out Paul's in the prison preaching. The Roman soldiers are either getting saved or trying to get, get time off so they don't have to be chained to him anymore. You know, and, 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 and everybody, as he wrote to the Philippians, in the palace are hearing the word of God. So all of this has worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. So he's saying, Tychicus is going to tell you everything that's going on. And so he comes and tells them Paul's testimony so that they can be encouraged and what Paul is doing and continue to pray for him. That's what's happening here. 
And so he concludes this way, verse 23, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that. His heart is that they would have peace, love, and faith from God. So he prays that for them. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. I love that because he, he's, this should be our prayer. You know, there are times and there's cities where there's so many people who love the Lord. I, I, I was at a restaurant the other day and I had my Bible out and the lady was like, hey, you got your Bible out. Where do you go to church? And I'm talking to her and she's telling me where she goes to church in town. And, you know, and there's that we both love the Lord. And so there's that we, I don't even know her name, might not see her until we get to heaven. But there's all those, he's saying, who love our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is huge, it's varied, it's wonderful. In sincerity, and he ends with an amen. And that's the book of Ephesians. And so we finished it. Amen. Yeah. God is good. We, uh, we're going to close as the worship team comes up. And... Uh, we will, uh, one more book in the New Testament and we're done. So next week, Colossians chapter one, verse one, be here. Also, we'll have Colossians journals out if you'd like to pick one up. So come early before service if you want to get one of those.